Welcome to the Just Larson Show on Innovation and Leadership. Uh, this episode, I'm excited to have my friend Saxon Knight on the show. Saxon, thanks for doing this. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So uh, a lot of things I want to talk about. Um, why don't you start with, tell people what, what your current day job is and title, and uh, then we're going to talk about business, we're going to talk about previous roles, all sorts of fun things. Perfect. Um, I recently joined Meta, so formerly Facebook, as the Director of Risk Intelligence. So um, my role is uh, sort of overs oversight of and um, creating sort of a holistic picture of the various broad categories of risk facing Meta and its family of apps and services. So it's, um, it's basically risk intelligence. My previous roles have been more threat focused, but this is a more risk focused role. Um, and so when you think about that on a global space, you know, a global scale business mm -hmm. involves literally billions of humans. You know? um, what kind of mindsets do you feel like you've, you've brought to the table that have helped you excel in that role? I think one of the things that's always helped me is comes from my early days in government. Um, I was trained very early on to think like the adversary. Um, and I think that's a really helpful, um, just like a helpful kind of way to, to approach a lot of the issues that you face, even in the compliance and risk world. I think um, a lot of times people think, you know, if I'm in compliance, if I've mitigated my risk, I, I've done enough. But I think um, having lived in kind of the threat world and the risk world, I always think about um, there's the things that we all think like are our critical assets, but then there are the things that the adversary would consider critical assets. And so seeing both sides of that coin gives you kind of more of a, um, I, what I would call kind of more of a holistic approach to security, whether it's, um, again, if you're in sort of the, um, regulated space and compliance is more of your game, or if you're in more of the adversarial threat space, um, being able to judge sort of what your core critical assets are, and then also understand sort of in the mind of the adversary what could be and might be um, e even of more interest to them. Yeah. Well, I, I have to give a quick shout out to our mutual friend, Jim Lawler, who yes. has been on the show and who, who got us together. Um, uh, can you talk about, why don't you talk about some of those previous roles, of, you know, LinkedIn government, these things? Yeah. So I actually started my career in the U.S. government. Um, it was pretty soon after 9-11. And um, I had was coming out of a master's degree in, in uh, international affairs. And I sort of stumbled into my first role in the intelligence community. And I immediately fell in love. I felt like it was such a necessary um, and interesting, very dynamic uh, field to be in, especially at that time. Um, my focus area was actually physical security. Um, so I started my career you know, a million miles away or so it seemed from cyber. Um, and Jim was one of the mentors I had very early on when I worked for Department of Energy. Um, I also worked for Homeland Security and Department of State. And so kind of made my, my rounds, I guess, in D.C. And um, what, Jim was so instrumental in helping me. One of the things within the intelligence community is really connecting like very disparate pieces of uh, information into kind of cogent um, intelligence analysis that's contextualized, that correlates. Um, and, and Jim was really instrumental in helping me sort of develop that skill set. And that's a skill set that I can say pretty authoritatively that I've used in every single job I've ever had. And so um, it's a great skill set. I'm very glad that I sort of started in that physical security space. And then um, I lived in the Middle East for a couple of years, uh, and I started to see the shift in the security um, field and the landscape shifting into the cyberspace. And I thought, gosh, I don't know anything about this. And I kind of can see, read the tea leaves. I need to get 
as smart um, as possible, as quickly as possible. So I ended up joining um, a Wall Street uh, firm, a, a bank, um, a Wall Street bank, and helped them design their threat intelligence program. And um, that was very interesting for me to go from the U.S. government and the public service space into a regulated private sector space. Um, but what I found, and still to this day, I I'm sort of astounded that I that I didn't see this coming. I had thought that the the transition from physical to cyber was going to be this massive career transition, and it would take me years to sort of get my feet under me. But going back to what we talked about earlier about thinking like the adversary, establish what your critical assets are, that holds true whether you're doing physical security or cyber. And so I actually found the transition to be really um, enjoyable. And it was more just uh, another way to use the skills that I had um, built through my time within the U.S. government. Um, so as I worked for Deloitte for um, some years in London and New York City doing um, cyber risk advisory. So I've always sort of been in that space where it's sort of understanding the criticality, um, figuring out defense in depth and establishing sustainable and evolutionary ways um, to sort of do security. And then when, when did you go over to LinkedIn? Oh, so my, yes. So my most recent role um, bef before Facebook or Meta was LinkedIn. So I was the director of threat prevention and defense for LinkedIn for almost two years. Um, my focus there was a little bit more in the threat space. So it was really the intelligence function for LinkedIn, um, looking at all of the, you know, abusive activity and actors um, focused on the platform. And so for people who don't know who those are, like what's an example of that? So on all social media platforms, um, there's, you know, as in everything, there's a great way to use it and um, the right way to use it. And then there's all, always the groups and the actors and the people that will find the nefarious, abusive ways to use it. So um, on every social media platform, you can imagine there's child exploitation that happens. There's human trafficking. There are um, nation state actors that are uh, using these platforms as, frankly, open source intelligence. Um, free open source intelligence to try and figure out who they need to get close to and, and who has access to the information that they're interested in. So um, that's definitely something that, you know, you're just going to see across the board on social media. It's a it's a way to connect um, with the people that you love. And it's also a way for for bad actors to connect with people. Yeah, I remember reading articles about um, some Chinese intelligence officers that had got caught uh, with fake LinkedIn profiles as beautiful young women befriending <laughs> Be, you know, it works every time yeah. befriending these, you know, a little bit older, older yeah. guys with uh, certain clearances and stuff in, in the government and um, and finding out like incredible webs of like how they were able to connect to so many of them and then start sending messages and, uh, you know, very benign ways. Right. To, to start things off. Yeah, it is really interesting how like the intelligence process from an adversary perspective um, is very technical. Um, whereas I think Jim and, you know, when I was in the intelligence community, like we, we were very focused on like the, the human interactions. Now, so much of what happens in the intelligence space is, um, is technology, is technology enabled, I would say. Yeah. Um, so you've got this, you've got this whole career, you've got this whole world, and then you've got House of Saxon. Talk to us about this. I do. I do. Yes. So. House of Saxons is an idea that um, came to me about around the time I was pregnant with my first child. So about five or so years ago, I was working for Deloitte in London and I was about to go on maternity leave. And I was really thinking about, you know, this is a major life change. If there's any time to make, you know, a, a huge life change, like would I still want to go back to cybersecurity? Um, 
cybersecurity has always been, and the security field has always been just a really exciting place for me to be. I've always had incredible jobs. I've really felt fortunate to be in a lot of industries and environments where I've, I've learned a ton. Um, but I didn't ever feel that I was able to really give back. And I didn't feel like I was building a legacy, like a personal legacy. And one of the things um, that I really wanted to do was empower um, marginalized groups of women. And I wanted to think about how do, how do I elevate sort of that, that concept of like the rising tide lifting all boats? How do I elevate women who are sort of unseen and unheard to a place of empowerment? Um, and my idea was really um, the, the, the trafficking survivors, the people who have really escaped an extremely harrowing and traumatic um, life reality. What happens to them after that? Who comes alongside them and, and kind of get, gets them to a place where they feel seen, heard, empowered? And one of the ways that I thought maybe I could, um, I could in contribute to that is teaching basic business skills, the skills that I've learned that you've probably learned along the way during all of your, you know, if you look down your resume, there's all these different jobs. Um, when, I, when I thought about trafficking victims, I thought, you know, it's a, it's a really big delta to go from from that life experience to then find sort of a sustainable financial and economic freedom. And so the concept around House of Saxons is attaining financial independence um, for women, and especially for women who have been marginalized um, and trafficked and exploited. So that's kind of that's kind of the heart and soul of what House of Saxons is hoping to achieve. Well, obviously, I'm pretty inspired by it. It's, it's been fun to have our phone calls and talk strategy yeah. about ways that Child Rescue Association might be able to be helpful to you guys. And um, 100%. I really like that you're looking at it from a potentially more financially sustainable manner instead of just another nonprofit, which I say that having run a nonprofit for 13 years, it's a terrible model. I should have done social entrepreneurship. <laughs> but can you talk a little bit more about kind of that, your, your model there with Health Saxons? Yeah, when I when I started to think about this this from a concept, it did sound like a nonprofit. But one of the things that I thought at the very beginning was I really only want to do this if I'm going to be able to change a narrative. And for me, there are a lot of narratives that, especially in the women's equality conversation, um, that we maybe aren't having and should be. One of those narratives um, is you know the fact that all women deserve the chance to be um, seen and heard and given opportunities. One of the other narratives that um, I don't hear being talked about a lot is that philanthropy and profitability, they don't really need to be mutually exclusive. And I feel, it seems like people sort of feel like they have to decide, am I a capitalist or am I a philanthropist? And I wanted to really challenge that and say, is there a way that we can set up um, a, thriving, a thriving business model where people are being helped? There's a social justice component. There's like an ethical business model here um, but at the same time, we're not a nonprofit. Um, so it's kind of a social experiment to say, you know, are there ways that we can challenge the system where we feel like we have to choose, right? We have to choose between having a, a quote unquote real job and then your, you know, side, your side philanthropy or your volunteer work on the side. Um, what if we blend that and really do good and change the world, um, but also, you know, blend that into a, a marketable and a profitable enterprise? And so, um, why did you choose fashion as the angle there? Fashion was a way that I thought we could really engage people. So one of the things that I think about a lot is 
when people give, um, do they do they give once or do they give a part of themselves? And, and what I wanted to do is engage people in the journey of these women who have come out of trafficking, who have survived one of the most horrific fates um, and gone on. A lot of these women are incredibly resilient, incredibly inspired to really change their life. How do we how do we um, love on them and be a part of their story rather than just write a check? And so instead of saying like, you know, write a check for $100 or $1,000 or $10 one time, what I wanted to do was invite people into this journey and invite people into the story. Because one of the things that I want to accomplish through House of Saxon is raise awareness. There's something very um, unknown about the trafficking realities. I'm not talking about, there's definitely trafficking going on in far flung parts of the world, but there's definitely trafficking going on right here outside of New York City. And so that was one of the areas, again, going back to changing the narrative. I wanted people to really understand the people that they were helping and to be able to say, like, I, I had a part in this. And so the fashion piece is really kind of a sideshow, but it, it is a way for people to engage with House of Saxons in a way that they have something with them for the rest of their lives, um, a handbag or a, a luxury good something that will remind them that they had, um, they have, uh, have played a very, very intrinsic and important part in a woman's journey from, um, you know, exploitation into true freedom. Well, I think one of the reasons that I'm encouraged and, you know, I think about the call that we did with my wife, Stephanie, right? The three of us. Yes. And, you know, she grew up the daughter of a trafficking survivor and her mom had very limited economic opportunities. And like, Lori's, my mother-in-law is kind of one of my heroes for, for completely changing the cycle in that family. But, you know, she was, she was a waitress. She did, she did jobs to get by because she was kind of doing whatever she had to. But she didn't have a lot of the skill sets that so many of us take for granted of like how the regular world works. And, um, and it, it limited the way that my wife grew up, right? And so where I see a lot of great aftercare facilities helping with, um, mental trauma and, and PTS and things like this. And, and I see people talk about job training or things like this. I don't see a ton of it. You know, like we had Kelly Gage on the show and I love what mm -hmm. those guys are doing at Newey Network yeah. because it's like legitimate job training and it's, it's really giving people a, a very plausible longer term future and skills that can be built on. Um, but, you know, there are only so many places and they can only help so many folks. And unfortunately, we have we have a lot of survivors of trafficking. Um, can you talk a little bit more? Of, so on the fashion side, can you give people an example of, of how it's going to work, how it is working, things like that? Yeah. So we we have something called the Freedom Collection. And one of the things that's important about House of Saxons is we are a collaboration. So that the word house is used on on purpose, right? Like this is a coming home. And so. One of the things that you'll see from our Freedom Collection is that we're collaborating with, with noted designers, global um, luxury designers. And what we wanna do is really um, empower other designers to take a stand against trafficking. So they don't have to do that um, in any other way than doing what they do best, which is creating beautiful, um, beautiful goods, beautiful designs. And so what you'll see in our Freedom Collection is ways that, again, the philanthropic, like philanthropic minded individual can engage um, with the anti-trafficking movement in a way that feels um, real and feels part of their daily life. This feels like something that they would do on a normal daily basis. 
Um, it doesn't seem, it doesn't, it's not an add-on, it's not an extra. Again, just going back to changing the narratives, like really trying to weave philanthropy into the fabric of your everyday life instead of kind of having it be, um, I, I think I used the word sideshow earlier, kind of a sideshow. Um, and so that's what you'll see with the Freedom Collection is um, luxury collaborations with global designers um, who want to take a stand against um, trafficking. And of course, fashion is also one of the industries that has um, the furthest to go in, in a lot of this area. You have There's a lot of um, evidence out there about some of the really, really poor choices that um, you know fashion houses have made in the past. And so I think this is going to be a really interesting conversation to say, you know, let's stand up for, for some of the areas that you're standing up for already, climate change, sustainability, um, but let's also embrace, um, you know, from a from an equity perspective and equality perspective, let's let's embrace trafficking as another platform that needs to be, um, you know, kind of evangelized because fashion has such a strong voice and such a strong influence. Um, so if people want to get involved, if they want to learn more about it, where's the best place online? So we have a website, um, houseofsaxons.com. Um, we have amazing volunteers from all walks of life who are helping us um, right now. You can always purchase something from our Freedom Collection, but um, one of the things that I think is even more important is getting to know the survivor stories, and that's going to be part of what we what we talk about um, on our website is who you're helping and how. I think it's really, really important for people to understand that we're not just kind of going back to the conversation a few minutes ago about the job training. This is really career and life training. This is, this is having um, an impact on someone's future, and I think one of the things that when I think about what does success look like for House of Saxons, I think about intergenerational change, like you talked about with Laurie and Stephanie. Like, if there is a way that you can make a small act today that prevents the next generation from even, you know, having trafficking be an option for them, like that, that truly is success. And so I think um, we're looking, we're, we're shooting for the stars in terms of not just helping people launch careers, but also preventing that next generation, um, the children of trafficking victims and giving them the chance to see, you know, a parent go from, you know, having no job or having limited um, viability in the job market to really being a successful candidate, um, you know, in a range of markets and industries. That's great. Um, well, uh, thank you for everything you're doing there. The cause needs great people like you involved. Thank you. Thank you for your guidance and your perspective. It's just the mentorship is incredible. And I really appreciate you including me on here. <laughs> um, well, I, I want to talk about your I want to talk about your day job more again. You think about okay. how intimidating how intimidating tech can be. Yes, very. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of a mindset? I mean, like <laughs> director, you know, from not coming from that background to now be holding, you know, director level positions at uh, companies involved with hundreds of millions and billions of humans. Uh, that's, a, that's a pretty dramatic story there. <laughs> what do you attribute your success to? Um, I think, well, the Lord, for sure. Um, I'm a pretty spiritual person. So that's definitely uh, the, num the number one thing. But I also think um, one of the things I talked to about earlier was that transition from physical security into cybersecurity. And I think the lesson I learned then has really stuck with me. And that is that there are so many intrinsic basic skills that we have 
um, that are going to serve us no matter where we go in life. And so um, you'll, if you look at my resume and my you know, job history, I always say I have this kind of checkered past because I've done a lot of different things in a lot of different um, areas, but I've always kind of stuck to using the same core skills, critical thinking, um, confident communications, executive level briefings, um, you know, str strategic thinking, designing for the future. Those, like every job I've had um, or every role I've had is really centered on those same key principles. So again, like not to bring it back to House of Saxons, but one of the things I do believe is that there is a core um, kind of, yeah, core set of skills that are kind of the heartbeat for um, your viability in the workplace. And those are not necessarily job specific. Those are more um, less tangible than that. And so um, having confidence, being able to speak to lots of different people. I mean, I've been the keynote speaker at, you know, um, oil and gas conferences in, in the Middle East, where I'm literally the only woman in, in a ballroom of, you know, full of men. And so being able to go into those situations um, and speak with with clarity and poise and confidence is something that that serves no matter you know no matter where you are. I mean, it serves me as a mother, right? I have two toddlers, and that serves me as a mom. So, I think um, those are all really, really special and unique skills that um, kind of serve you again over like a range of of opportunities. Let's talk about that one on confidence. You know, mm. I think regardless of what business, what career, what we're doing, um, it, it's pretty rare person that more confidence wouldn't be helpful. And yes. obviously misplaced confidence isn't helpful. But um, when you think about the skill of growing confidence and specifically confidence around public speaking, what advice do you have mm. for others? One of the things that I always think about is, you know, when people talk about imposter syndrome and a lot of people talk about struggling with that, I always think about um, I'd like to live somewhere in the, in the middle of this spectrum between the ultimate humility of like, what am I doing in this role? Like, why did they choose me? I don't deserve to be here. Um, and then also the other end of that spectrum, which is they chose me, so I'm here. So I'm going to do my best and that's all I can really do. And so I think with public speaking, um, a couple things I always go in with is I never, or I try never to talk about things that I don't know very much about. So, um, you know, figuring out what you're a real subject matter expert in, um, your lived experience is, is the best one, right? You're, everybody's an expert in their own lived experience. But beyond that, like professionally, um, I've always tried to um, focus on things that I'm passionate about because then I, I, I really want to dig deep and go like a mile wide and a mile deep. And so um, speaking about things that you're passionate about, that you care about, that you're interested in, um, that is definitely, you know, a big part of it. Um, I also think having the humility uh, to learn from the audience, um, no matter if it's you're briefing your boss in a one-on-one -on -one or if you're briefing a ballroom of people, um, I think there's a really, uh, there's a tendency to feel like you have to know everything going in, but that curiosity and that innate inherent willingness to learn something, um, I think is really important. And I think people sense that and they sense that you're giving them everything you know, but you're willing to learn more. Um, and so that becomes kind of a conversation, even if you're standing at a podium, you know, the, people feel like there is there's a conversation being had. And I think that's really important and has served me well as well. So it's, I guess, yeah, somewhere on that spectrum of like, I, you know, I was chosen, so I'm going to do my best and then also being willing to learn more and, and assume that there's there's going to be more to the story that you don't know. You know, um, it's interesting how it actually expresses a form of confidence 
to be okay not knowing and to not judge ourselves for not knowing. I think about like real subject matter experts and you know people who have who you know billionaires or different folks that I've been lucky enough to interact with at different times. They're not like embarrassed that they don't know the answer. Yeah. And 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 they're not shy about what they don't know. Like they're confident about what they do know and they're not embarrassed that they don't know everything. And it's it's interesting how confidence producing it is when, you know, it doesn't have to be a billionaire, but it, it could be, you know, a Delta Force guy. It could be a yeah. some some other person that's highly accomplished at what they do. And and they're like, oh, yeah, I, I probably don't have much to say about that. I don't really have experience there. And they just leave it. They don't make an excuse. They don't pretend. But if I did have something to say, it would be this or you know what I mean? And they're kind of like yeah. they're very OK. They're very OK with like, oh, yeah, that's not what I do. Yes. Do you have any other questions? Yeah, I totally agree with that because it's like, you know, I have toddlers, right? So I'm constantly being asked questions and I love it because I see this curiosity and it reminds me that we did not come out of the womb subject matter experts in anything, right? Maybe crying, but like there is just this curiosity that um, nobody builds that overnight. And I think it is, um, you know, it's one of those personal hallmarks, like no matter what, you know, you do for a living or no matter how you spend your time being willing to learn and actually enjoying the process of learning something more, um, I think is, you know, basically you'll never be bored, right? Because you're always, whether it's in person, your personal life or your professional life or your relationships or whatever it is, um, you're always being willing to evolve. Like I think about it as like an evolutionary process and you're becoming the most, the highest and best form of yourself. Um, through those questions and through those, I don't know, tell me more kind of the answers. Yeah. Um, you know, I want to take this a different direction. When you think about, like, let's say there's CEOs listening today or investment fund managers who are advising CEOs. And, you know, tech has been such a major news story for especially the last two decades. Oh, my goodness, okay? yeah. Um, and you think about um, this idea that, that a number of entrepreneurs have of, of becoming a giant success story. And I'm interested, you know, when you, you look at LinkedIn, where you're at a meta, um, seeing organizations that have made it, what kind of advice would you have for CEOs who are trying to make it? I think that one of the things that I notice about massive, massive companies who have made it is sometimes the, the effort to quote unquote make it um, stifles that curiosity that we were just talking about. One of the big things that I notice um, at the highest levels is um, sort of a, a, an unwillingness to say, maybe there's more that we can do, or maybe we're going in a different direction. It, it takes a lot for a big company to say, you know what, we're going to shift the battleship one degree, knowing that, you know, a year from now, we might be in a different ocean. Um, I think there's like a real, a real humility to that, a real humility to say, you know, I obviously think my idea is great, but there's a chance that there's a better idea out there, right? And and let's take a chance on that. So I think um, one of the things for CEOs especially is being willing to um, kind of let go of the narrative a little bit and say, like, maybe there's a better, higher plane that we can get to. Like, this is a great plane to be on where we're in a successful, you know, parallel, but maybe there's a higher and better plane. Um, and I think that that sort of... Um, appetite for for innovation for um for really i guess innovation is probably the best word is something that when i look at incredible ceos i see that um that sort of risky like that risk appetite where it's like yeah let's try it like let's give it a try knowing 
that um, the people that you have, that the energy that you have, all this sort of soft skills, quote unquote, will help you, um, you know, will be in that safety net no matter, no matter where you take the battleship. So I think that the desire to um, pursue innovation, even the, at the expense of, um, you know, it's sort of taking this like calm, clear path forward. You see that with Meta right now, right? You see that with um, Horizon Worlds and um, the Metaverse, like that's that's something that's a very big, you know, change from the the Facebook of the past, you know, 18 years. Yeah, no kidding. Um, okay, related but different question. Uh, yeah. There's probably a lot of, there's probably a lot of, uh, startup founders or people listening today that would love to have a LinkedIn or a Meta as a client. When you when you think about um, people who would like to sell into an organization like that, they want to work with with senior leaders to make them a client. Um, let's start with some don'ts. Here's some things that will turn off a senior leader at a giant tech company immediately. What what yeah. are what are mistakes you see made? I think the mistakes that I see made are people wanting to come in, um, solve the problem and move on. So one of the things, especially in my days as a consultant, I, I watched um, people wouldn't take the time to sort of go native. And what I, what I mean by go native is really sit down and say, don't just tell me, you know, the problems or the pain points, like tell me about the culture. Tell me about what I'm up against here is, is this a, uh, you know, is are people really resistant to change or how is this going to go over? It's so easy to come in and say like, here's your 50, you know, 50 slide deck with all the things you should do. And now I'll take my check and I'm going to move on to the next client. I think there's something really special about a vendor or, um, you know, a consultant or whatever you want to call it, um, a partner who will come alongside and say, like, I want to walk beside you in this journey. I want to feel the pain you're feeling, or I want to walk through the change you're feeling. I think that that is something that people forget that um, the sales, the amount of energy that goes into the initial pitch is so much more than the energy that goes into keeping the client happy, right? And so mm. if you if you walk beside your client um, long term, there's just um, there's a beautiful partnership that comes out of that. And I think um, you know from a from just like a strictly numbers perspective, if you if you can keep your client in that retention um, pool, just getting bigger and bigger and bigger then you're not spending the majority of your time trying to sell your services to new clients. And I, I, again, just going back to that partnership model, like coming alongside someone and saying, I'm going to walk through the valleys and not just, you know, show you the slide deck to get to the mountaintop. That's such solid advice. That's really solid advice no matter what business you're in, actually. Yeah, true. True. That's right. That's right. I guess so. Um, what's one other tip, whether it's from your Deloitte time selling to executives, or your LinkedIn or Meta time being a senior executive, what's one other tip that you have for folks that that uh, you know they want to land these giant accounts? They want to they do want to build a relationship with with a senior decision maker, you know, a potentially hard to reach senior decision maker. Yeah, one of the things that for me is always I always sit up and take notice of is when someone comes in and shows me an unknown unknown, something that I didn't even know I should be worried about. Like that for me is um it goes back to when i was working in the middle east actually in the government i remember sitting down with um you know oil executives and they would say like this is our critical asset this is what we need to be focused on and if if you saw sort of the bird's eye view and were able to say like actually you know you're thinking that the the center of your refinery is the is the you know the gold but 
what about the front gate? What about the back gate? What about that gate that you don't even man? Like those are the conversations where I think people start to take notice and think, okay, you're clearly thinking about this problem from like the other side of the table and seeing a side of it that I'm not. Um, I would say that's always for me the most, um, the most like moving pitch is when someone comes in and says, I hear what you're saying and I can absolutely help you with that. But have you also thought of this? Here's an, here's a, here's an unknown unknown that I want to add to your known unknowns and I can help you with that as well. That's great. Um, have you heard of this uh, CEB book called The Challenger Sale? Mm -mm. Uh, it, it has, there's some real similarities there about this idea of like, can you do so much of your own homework that at the end of a sales meeting, the prospect says, that was such good consulting, I should have paid you for that. Like, Interesting. where, you know, it's not just, I'm not just a mater d here to, to do what you ask. I, I'm, yeah. I'm here to push your thinking. And, uh, and yeah. how, especially in enterprise sales, people do so well with that. So it's, I'm not surprised to hear you. That's so true. Say, say the same That's message. That's so true. Yeah, and um, I think like executives, especially in the security world, CISOs and CROs and, you know, sort of like, there's, there's not a lot of um, C-suite executives that are thinking that way, right? Because they're so focused on the BAU and the metrics for success. They don't have a lot of time to, to kind of think about like the negative space, as it were. So I do think it's really impactful um, to come in and kind of uh, paint that that negative space out for for an executive. Well, it's interesting how um, negatives with enough thought can 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 show another side of the coin. You know, we had Josh Mata on the show, and their cyber insurance company. I mean, you're to like five billion in five years, but it's not just the the cyber insurance. Like he monitors, like he like. We, he told this great story on the episode about like calling one of the clients saying, hey, by the way, you're being hacked right now and it's this terminal and you need to turn this off. And it was like, the CISO was like so frantic and nuts. It took him like a day to like to ask himself, how did, how did those guys actually know I was Wait. hacked? They're like, thank you, but how did you know? You know? And, uh, and like, that's just not an expected thing from an insurance company to be that proactive, to be going ahead and to look like, look, yeah. you know, look at what we can do, you know, not just clean up the mess afterwards, look at, again, coming alongside you, look at how we want to help you with all your problems, not just our main core business. Not just the problem that I want to sell you, I want to help you with all of you kind of an approach. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree. I think what it shows is that you're in it for the long haul, right? Like everybody's got their one, three, five-year plan, but most sales are focused on like the one-year contract or maybe the three-year contract, you know, to, but to walk into and say, I'm really looking to solve, help you solve, you know, um, sort of in concentric circles out um, over the long haul. I think that's that's a very, very compelling and very different sales strategy than most vendors um, yeah. inhibit. You know, um, people who listen to this show often know I can hardly make it through an episode without talking about Warren Buffett, books, the special operations community, and the intelligence community. I kind of have to cover <laughs> all four of those in every episode, I feel okay, like. Okay, let's go. Um, so I... I have so much respect for the Intel community, and um, I feel like, um, well, I just want to hear from you. You know, people see what's in the movies, and they see the negative things that reporters like to put in the news, but so often the successes from the Intel community don't get published. And, and I, I guess my experience getting to know folks from your background, um, it was surprising to me, like, what fierce patriots they were. And, like, how much like that same like 
that same genuine feeling of service I see in the nonprofit world trying to stop sex trafficking of children, I found that in the Intel community of like, no, I really want families to be able to go to the Little League game and not have to worry. And that's why I'm doing this 11 hour day today. Um, yeah. Can you talk about some of the uh, some of the things you liked? Some of the you know, let, let's get some good press to the IC. Yeah, yeah, some good press. That's easy. Um, I will always look back on my time within the intelligence community as some of the most meaningful work that I ever did. Most of it, yeah, you don't you don't get to talk about, you don't get to post about it or blog about it or you know even tell your parents about it. But I think the thing that really kind of shows how meaningful it is is not when you're in it, but when you leave. So when you see people make the transition from um, government service, uh, from a military position, from the intelligence community into um, the private sector, I think it really, it really shows what the mission-driven um, orientation does for just your, your excitement, your passion. Um, to, to be part of something bigger than yourself, I think, is a very, very primal instinct that all of us, I mean, you can, you can say that's like the reason for religion or gangs or you know whatever like there's so many ways in which we crave community and we crave um greater meaning and a shared meaning and so i think to be able to funnel your whether it's your talent your time your resources your innate you know proclivities into something that you really feel is advancing something that's way bigger than yourself and the sum of the parts is just so much more massive than any you know than the um, the individual pieces. I think that that is um, that is extremely fulfilling, and I think um, you know as as I get older, you know, the more people I talk to, it, it's very difficult these days to find people that love their jobs or are excited about their jobs. Like most people see a job as like the necessary evil. I got to pay the mortgage, etc. Um, most people, at least in my experience, and certainly myself, when when I was in the intelligence community, did not feel that way. Um, my job was something that um, was, you know, as much a part of my identity as as anything else. Um, and that's a real transition and a real challenge for people. And I see it when I when people come from uh, military backgrounds or, or the IC into the private sector. It's a really big transition and they feel like, what are we doing this for? I don't I yes, I'm getting paid more and the hours maybe are a little bit better or what, you know, but it's um, it's a really big transition. I think that really speaks to that feeling of um, meaningful community. Um, by the way, that has turned into a lot of volunteers for Child Rescue. So I don't think we've talked about this on our calls, but you definitely need like some like button on House of Saxons for like, yes. did, did you serve? Are, are you looking for a bigger mission in life? You know, are you yeah. looking to belong to a team and have a, have a bigger purpose? I think there's a lot of volunteer hours available for House of Saxons. We need to start funneling some of these that people to you. That is a great idea. Yeah, that's such a great idea because um, you're right. People, I think they, people have limited time, right? Limited resources. And you know, if you have anything extra to give, you want it to be, you know, something that feels really, really powerful and meaningful. Um, same with, same with Child Rescue. Like, I just feel like there's no way you can volunteer or be a part of that and not feel like you're, you're part of something extremely important. Um, again, going back to what we talked about, about intergenerational change, like that is, um, if, you know, if you're ever going to put your, your time and talent towards something, um, it, it should be that. And so I agree that that's a really good point. We should start, um, embracing the, the community of, of folks that are coming out from like the mission driven, um, organizations. Yeah. Um, well, I want to get, let's do some more advice for, you know, entrepreneurs, CEOs, investment fund managers. 
Um, Gosh, I don't know thinking about advice. the world specifically on the threat side of things. Um, you know, this is a constant, constantly evolving world. There's so much money in cyber criminals and state actors innovating, innovating faster security measures, things like this. And, you know, as more hacks have happened, as more customer data has been exposed, like the financial implications for not being protected are becoming more and more evident. And, and folks who, you know, didn't really spend much time on it, they're too busy making money, are, are like perking up in ways they haven't before of like, ooh, Oh, yeah. we have locks on the front door and they don't really matter. Yeah. Yep. Right? right. Um, yeah. When you think about, you know, again, malicious state actors who, who would like to damage the U.S. economy uh, specifically um, or, or the West anywhere and um, and just straight cyber criminals. Um, what advice would you have for for leaders today as they you know, as they look at the next even just handful of years? What, what are what are some things that you would maybe share with us? I think that one of the things that I always encourage senior leaders to do is consider everything that you're already doing to be table stakes. So most people are playing defense in the security game. Um, and I can say with authority that all of the same actors that I was up against in the private sector were the same actors I was up against 10, 12 years before in, in, the, in the government. And so um, if we know that the that the actor set is is doing nothing but getting smarter, right? They're not going away. They're not choosing to play a different game. They're doing nothing but learning, evolving, and getting smarter. Um, playing defense is uh, should be just table stakes. Meaning um, your compliance programs, your threat intelligence programs, all of the things that people generally feel like I have a robust system or I have a robust response. Um, is really not enough. And I, I, and I say that because knowing full well that, you know, budgets and trying to recruit people in cyber is, is difficult. Um, so I'm not saying this is easy, but what I think that any, even medium maturity level from a security maturity level organization should be looking to do is play offense. And what I mean by that is be proactive about um, mitigating risk and also anticipating threat. There's so much that we can anticipate um, when we look back, right? Like the gift of the present, what we're facing today and what we've faced in the past is that we can use that to extrapolate, to um, take our best guess. And, and that's really in the intelligence community, what you're doing a lot of the time, right? You're, you're collecting information and signals, whether it's from humans or whatever, and then you're turning that into extrapolative analysis on what you think um, might, uh, might be you know, likely to happen down the road. And I think that that attitude is really helpful in the security field as well, is to say, okay, you know, we can sit around waiting for the next, you know, break in, the next breach, the next adversary, you know, um, new, new, you know, tactic, or we can get um, play offense. And I think that that's something that I don't see very often. Um, and again, it goes back to budgets, it goes back to time, it goes back to competing resources, it goes back to, you know, at the highest levels is your C-suite and your board, um, you know, kind of in that mindset. And that's not always the case. But I do think that considering that the adversary is not going away, the TTPs are getting just more and more refined, um, we you know, have no other choice than to start looking at our security um, and even our, our, our risk protocols from, a, from an offensive position. By the way, I always forget what the P stands for in TTP. Tactics, techniques, and procedures. Okay. 
was gonna say protocols. I was like, no, I think it's procedures. I was like, I'm just gonna ask. Name, I I always say tactic techniques and procedures, but I, I'm sure that's it. Yeah. Um. So for people who don't come out of the military or the intelligence community, can you talk about red teaming and just like, let's say somebody wants to, they're like, okay, they're listening to this and they are the big cheese and they can make that decision. And, and you know, they do want to get senior folks in, in a boardroom and do some red teaming and, and, and start thinking off offensively. Can you give people just a bit of a head start of the kind of questions to ask and what that could look like? Yeah. I So one of the things that I love are like simulated war games. Um, I've always been a big fan of that, especially my physical security days. But the thing that you have to remember when you're doing any kind of war gaming or red teaming is that um, you are creating the scenarios, right? There is no unbiased third party in this, right? Like there's always somebody who knows, you know, the, the, the lay of the land, who knows the assets, who, every, everything like that. So I think the best war games and the best scenarios I see are random and are, are truly mm. random in the sense that you bring in, um, a, a, whether it's a outside, you know, vendor or a third party, somebody who you can't predict. Um, and I think that really plays the part of the adversary much better than, you know, CISO against CRO or, you know, the the threat team against the, you know, red team or whatever. Um, and that's something that I've always noticed, even again, going back to my physical security days, that um, you start to learn each other's tactics. You sort of know, hey, last time this guy came around this way or broke in this way. So I do think that an element of randomness is super, super important. You just cannot predict. Um, you, even if you were correct about who the adversary is, correct about the TTP they used, once they get inside your perimeter, like it's anyone's guess, right? There's so many um, variables. And so I do think that one of the things people miss is that element of randomness and the element of surprise that it's hard to, um, that it's hard to mimic. It's something that, that truly needs to be organic and real. You know, as you're saying that, I'm, I'm thinking about like, you know, Frank Abagnale from uh, Catch Me If You Can, the Leonardo mm -hmm. DiCaprio movie, right? You mm -hmm. know, like how much he's done, you know, after coming out of prison, how much of that he did, or like, um, uh, I don't know if you've read any of those Kevin Mitnick books about social engineering, but he, mm. he yes. after coming out of jail, he's, he's done a lot of that, of like people bring him in for the unexpected. And yeah, um, it's such a good point of like, you know, like what's the, what's the chances that my, uh, my head of marketing has a really sophisticated criminal mind. Well, we hope not. <laughs> be like, in, in many we ways, hope we not, hope yeah. they're actually not not very good at it. Totally. Right? Yeah. Um, and but like that offense of like oh, go ahead. Role playing, role playing before there is a breach, and thinking mm -hmm. ahead of time in the like, you know, a pre mortem, right? Yeah, a hundred percent. And that's exactly the point I was just going to make. Most people feel like, hey, if we do this once a year, we're doing really well. Um, I've been in environments where there were uh, random and and secret, uh, you know, um, breaches happening on a weekly basis just to test, um, you know, to test your skills. And I think getting to that place where we're constantly our own worst enemy in the sense that we're constantly testing ourselves um, so that we're, you know, fighting fit when when the adversary does come knocking. Because, you know, one thing that I learned very quickly within my oil and gas days was, you know, there are certain adversaries that if if they if you're too heavily guarded, they'll move on to your neighbor, right? So all you really need to do is be a little bit well better secured, fortified, whatever, than your neighbor. But there are certain adversaries um, for ideological or whatever reasons that will not stop until they breach your defenses. And so I don't think 
that we can kind of play that game where it's like, well, let's just, you know, every once a year we'll test ourselves and kind of check that box. Like you really can't um, exist in a compliance mindset for the, the security landscape that we find ourselves in, whether you're in tech or financial services or really, you know, any industry at this point. Yeah. You know, for so many of us, we don't have physical assets like a refinery or something, right? Um, mm. I've heard people talk about this idea of like, you know, just literally trading hats of like, okay, if you were going to try and take yourself out of business, what would you go after first? Mm -hmm. And like at a basic level, I mean, I think, I think about mo most of my entrepreneur friends, like lots of us have never had that conversation where they, like, we're so busy trying to get our next client. We've never had this conversation of like, what would ruin our business? Like, what's the fastest way to ruin our company? And yeah. where would the biggest lawsuits come from if somebody, you know, somebody uh, trying to harm us got inside our system? You know, how do we get taken up? You know, like even some basic questions like that. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And those questions, you're right. Like, I think people forget that, you know, they think, well, I'm not in the security field, but it, like our business as usual activities, like our BAU, like bread and butter, there has to be security baked in. Like security cannot be a, a layer of frosting on the cake and easily like, baked into the cake. And so I totally agree with you. Like ask your, you know, ask yourselves within your sector and then find somebody that, you know, you think is a smart person and doesn't know anything about your sector. How would you do it? Like be curious and um, remember that there are people that are interested in what you have um, that, you know, you might not even view as like, is this really important to somebody else? But yeah, you're right. Like, how could I be put out of business? What's the quickest, what's the quickest and most devastating way I could be put out of business? Yeah. Well, um, this has been fun. I feel like we covered a lot of subjects. Uh, as we kind of wind down here, what's something we didn't talk about that you'd like to? Um, I think one of the things that I love to talk about is mentorship. Um, one, one of the things that you have done for me is kind of come alongside me, you and Stephanie both, and talk to me a little bit about, um, you know, your experience um, with your organization. And one of the things that I have found in my career is I very few mentors in my life. Um, and that's something that I, um, I, I sort of wish was different, but I, I like to talk about it because I think people don't, um, you know, the more people I talk to, the more people say like, yeah, me either. And, and I have, I've had to make really important, really massive decisions on the fly or by myself or in a vacuum. And so, um, I first just want to give you a shout out for being um, <laughs> a mentor to me and Stephanie. But I also want to just sort of um, say to people, like, let's talk about mentorship and let's talk about not just mentorship about, you know, professional things, but but life life decisions. I mean, so much of our personal and our professional lives are are blending nowadays, especially um, after COVID. So I think one of the things that's really been heavy on my mind lately is the importance of mentorship and the fact that a lot of us have gotten to where we are on a wing and a prayer. You know, it's not like, oh, I was... I had this big decision, so I asked my mentor, we talked it through, and I made a great decision. Like, that has not been my experience um, most, most of my journey. Um, and so I think it would be great to sort of nurture more people and, and shepherd people um, through, you know, through those big decisions and through those pivotal, pivotal moments where you're thinking, like, am I going to change my career or move for yeah. a job? You know, things like that. So, so I've got a couple of thoughts about this, and then I want to hear your thoughts, okay? Mm -hmm. So I feel like asking somebody to be your mentor always goes terrible for me. It's, it never pans out well. But um, I feel like if they're like a peer, like so much of my best mentorship has been 
other entrepreneurial CEOs who are like about my station or like, you know, we're, we're pretty mm. relatable and we've traded coaching back and forth to each other mm. of being each other's strategy advisor. And we're yeah. like, you know, every six weeks, it's like we do an hour and a half and it's 45 minutes each direction. And then there's the, and then there's the, the more informal version of that as well. But like somebody who's like really in the thick of it, who's in the same thing as me, but but who I have a lot of respect for what they've done. Yeah. Um, just having somebody to be somebody who gets what you're going through, but can be objective where they don't. It's not your spouse. It's not your business partner. It's not your staff. Yeah. It's not any of these people that are so emotionally wrapped up in the answer. Like where all they care about is that you get an answer. They don't really care what the answer is. Right? Yeah. They um, just don't want to see you suffer. <laughs> <laughs> and then the other one that's done well for me is for people like far above my, my level um, is, you know, being polite, asking for advice, asking for like a book to read, immediately going reading it and then reporting back, hey, I read that book. It was so good. This is what I learned from it. Did I miss any important things? And then do you have another one, another book for me? Because like mm. not everyone who reads is a leader, but I don't think I've met any leaders yet who, who aren't readers, you know, and they've Very recommended good. their favorite book a hundred times and nobody read it. Their kid won't read yes. it. They're, they're nobody. Read it. So when you're like one of like the very few handful that actually read it and came back enthusiastic and reported back that you read it, you like all of a sudden you set yourself apart from all these people. And there's like this, it's almost like a little flattering of like, oh, this person's yeah. hanging on my every word. And it wasn't just jabber. They actually went and took action. And then That's right. you do that like two or three times. And all of a sudden you're like, you're in a very small portion of people in life who actually do what they advise. And I find them much more willing, like, very wealthy, very accomplished folks have given me like quite a bit of time. Um, I think mostly out of that, like they weren't getting paid in money. I wasn't helping their business, but it was like this, like they get, they get to have the sense of service and they get the reward of their service actually did some good or it appeared to have done some good, you know? Yeah. Totally. Okay. Those are a couple of my tips. What tips do you have for people on, on mentors, whether it's Jim Lawler or anybody else? I agree with you that like, Asking someone to mentor you is so dicey, right? Because like, what if they don't have time? What if they're like, you think you have this great thing going and they're like, mm. so yeah, I agree. I feel like the best mentor um, relationships like are a mentor relationship before you even codify it, right? Like you just know that this is somebody that you can go to for advice and you respect their their sort of life perspective. Um, the the most interesting mentors for me in my life have been people that have a completely different life than me. Um, so one of my, my biggest mentors um, had three kids um, and when I had no kids. And so our lives were just so different. This is when I was like living in New York City um, and I would just, you know, but I learned so much from her because I saw there, there is probably a chance one day I'm gonna be where she is. So I'm learning about like the next phase so I would say like seek mentors out that are in your phase and know what you know and are dealing with what you're dealing with because there is this very inherent sense of community there. And I think it's important when we realize that we're not, um, that this is normal. Whatever we're going through is a phase or it's normal or it's very um, kind of a classic problem. It, there's there's um, a lot of um, kind of comfort in that. But then I would say also look for mentors that are in a completely different phase of life or a completely different life stage or, or sector or whatever, um, because, you know, you just don't know where your career is going to go. Like, I certainly would have never anticipated I'd be, you know, in tech, doing cybersecurity. So I'm, I'm glad that I sort of had this diversity of thought 
in the people in my life who, um, who sort of, you know, I surrounded myself with as um, wiser, you know, wiser than me. That's so good. Um, okay. Well, uh, what do you want to leave people with today? Um, gosh, I think, I don't know what everybody else needs to hear, but the thing that I really have been focused on this year more than anything is building building legacy and and feeling like my time is um, my time is you know I have very limited time I have very limited resources so how can I make the most and do the most with what I have to give whether it's professionally or personally so. I think that's probably the thing I would leave people with is just focusing on what is what does legacy mean to you? And it, it might not mean anything that's going to, quote unquote, change the world. But if it changes your world, I think that's that's pretty incredible. And so um, I would just leave people with the thing that I'm, you know, kind of focused on um, this year and and probably will be focused on into next year as well is like, how how is what I'm doing today feeding feeding that bigger um, that bigger picture for me that legacy that I want to that I want to leave behind that will outlive me that will outlive the tiny things that I'm doing day to day. That's great. Well, thanks again for doing this. Thank you, Jess. Thanks for having me. This was really fun. I I really enjoyed it. <laughs> okay. Bye, everyone.